Welcome to podcasts recorded live at the Center for Spiritual Living in Portland, Oregon. Listen past the end of the podcast to find out more about our spiritual center and ways that you may collaborate with us. Happy Sunday, everyone. We're working our way through the art of communication. We're uh, driving some inspiration from Thich Nhat Hanh and his ideas of how we can become better and more loving communicators. For those of you here last week, you know that we talked about deep listening, that one of the keys to good communication towards compassionate and loving communication is nothing more, well, and nothing less than true, honest listening. Today we're going to be using the flip side. We're going to be talking about the speaking part of things. And the desire, once again, is to promote uh, peace and love as we're talking. And uh, let me start out with a, a brief quote from this book. He says, Loving, truthful speech can bring a lot of joy and peace to people. But producing loving speech takes practice because we aren't used to it. When we hear so much speech that that causes craving, insecurity, anger, will we get accustomed to speaking that way? Truthful, loving speech is something we actually need to train ourselves in. In Buddhism, there is a practice called the Ten Bodhisattva Trainings. Four of these ten relate to right speech. And so we're going to cover those today. And and I know some of you out there are kind of a little bit of note takers. And I I saved you the the trouble today. Uh, You have little handouts that actually cover these these four elements of loving speech. So so feel free to just know you have your notes already. Um, The first element of loving speech, believe it or not, here we are adults, and yet the first element of loving speech is telling the truth. Now, you might think, Larry, do we really need to discuss that? I mean, we're not liars, right? And yet, I bet if we examine our own speech patterns, if we examine our conversations throughout the day, we will discover a number of confabulations, a number of uh, exaggerations, a number of fibs, perhaps even an outright lie or two. And so I kind of do want to talk about it. Um, because I think it does something very serious for us. When we are perceived as not telling the truth, it actually undermines our ability to be heard. It actually undermines our credibility. It actually discounts what we're saying. So that when we're maybe wanting to be very earnest, people still have that slight perception of us as, hmm, Maybe not quite being so truthful. You know, I, I, I think of this idea of lying. It takes me back to when I was seven or eight years old. And I still remember when Ricky and I were playing next door. I, I think, I think our, our mothers had decided uh, they needed relief. And so they pawned us off on, on uh, the neighbor uh, woman, Mrs. Palmer. And after about 15 minutes of the two of us, she had had enough too. And she said, why don't you boys go upstairs? There's a, like a whole little playroom up there. And sure enough, you go up her stairs and it was like under the eaves was a a whole kind of like a play area I think it was also like a second bedroom but she said just you know have fun (laughs) she was done with us well I gotta tell you the two of us got into a little bit of mischief and we managed to actually break an ornament it was like I don't even know what a Hummel figurine is 
but uh, oh, a parent. <laughs> I guess some of you do. All right. <laughs> well, so anyway, uh, so anyway, you know, what were a seven and eight year old going to do when they break an ornament? Well, we hid it, of course, and said nothing because that's, you know, when you're seven or eight, you know, and when I think of my motivation, it's like, well, I didn't want her to think less of me, right? I didn't want to get in trouble, and the trouble represented disappointing my parents and disappointing her. I didn't want my friend to get in trouble either. I mean, in, in my own seven- or eight-year-old mind, there are reasons why I was going to tell an out-face lie. Two days later, when my mother got the call from <laughs> Mrs. Palmer, and she came to see me and said, Larry, is there something you want to tell me about that <laughs> afternoon you sat at Mrs. Palmer's house? And I, of course, immediately went, oh. Oh, shit. <laughs> but what did I do? No, 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 everything was fine. Everything was fine. Well, of course, my mom, I don't know if she'd been watching modern interrogation processes on TV or whatnot, but if you think about it, my mom had me isolated in one cell and, and Ricky across town was isolated in his cell and one of us was gonna break first, right? And I guess that's the trouble with fibbing. Do we ever really get away with it? See, we really don't. And it colors both us and it colors the people around us. Now, now my mom, well, and Ricky's mom, had the idea maybe I can't really trust them to be, I mean, right? It wasn't so much that a thing broke, although now that I found out what a humble figurine is, maybe, maybe it is a thing that it broke. But, but anyway, more than that, it was really, so I'm raising someone that fibs about something that could be important to someone. It's like our credibility just plummets. And pretty soon, we're the one that you really can't trust information with. We're the one that, that has lapses in their ability to perceive and, and hold the truth for one another. And we simply become less than that bright light that we already are. The next thing is absolutely related, and I even have a joke about it. This is a, another one of the, the things that they say are part of loving speech. So the mosquitoes of Alaska are world famous for their size and their ferocity. During the mosquito season, no Alaskan goes outside at night, except maybe in a car with lots of repellent. Visitors, however, don't know about this. And one night, an unsuspecting visitor was seized by two enormous mosquitoes. Shall we eat him here or take him to the swamp? One of the mosquitoes asked the other. Well... We better take him here. If we take him back to the swamp, he's bound to be taken away by one of the big mosquitoes. <laughs> okay, exaggeration, right? Oftentimes, I think that we want to become more colorful in life. We want to have the expansiveness of who we are. We want to tell a good story. We want to be the life of the party. And for whatever reason, it seems like who we are and what we are and what we've done and what we have isn't quite enough. And so, as my grandmother used to say, we tell a fish story. Now, my grandfather was known for his tall tales, and, uh, and they weren't always about fish. In fact, they weren't that about fish very often, but Grandma would always say, oh, he's going to tell one of his fish stories. And that was our clue to, you know, right? It's like maybe 10% of the story would be real. Like maybe he actually went fishing. That part at least was real, right? But I gotta tell you, when it's done out of context of a tall tale, once again, 
we diminish ourselves. What we're subtly saying is, I'm not actually interesting the way I am. What we're subtly saying is that my own life isn't good enough for me just to tell you how it is. I gotta make something up. Once again, we're actually diminishing ourselves as we're telling exaggerations, as we're embellishing the truth. Now, I don't wanna give up the color though, right? And so we always have the chance of adding our take on the matter. We always have the chance of saying what really happened, and then the, the color comes from our reaction to it. The, the uniqueness of the story and my input in it is how I reacted, what happened, my own colorful way of explaining it. But when we actually alter the facts, we become less than. We say... I'm just not good as I am. It's got to be this way. And once again, we're diminished in the world. The next piece is really consistency. Have you ever known someone who might say one thing to one person and something quite different to someone else? And I don't mean necessarily lying about facts, but I mean even just their own take on it. Someone might come up to, um, say, Reverend Sharon and say, you know, I really loved your party. It was so fun, and everything was colorful, and the food was great. And then we go to Helen, who was at the party, and say, Sharon really needs to take care of her house a little better, doesn't she? <laughs> right? Now, now, actually, <laughs> I'm going to hear about this later, by the way, because... <laughs> Because Sharon's house is always immaculate, but but do you see how we do you see how we do things like this? Now it's not like I maybe said a lie to either of those two people, but it implies that the party was great, the party was not so great. And when we're divided up, when we're of two minds and start telling the world two different things, well, first of all, doesn't it always catch up to us? Isn't Sharon going to turn around and say, what did you think of the party? <laughs> right? And Helen's going to say, well, I enjoyed it, but you know, Larry thought some housekeeping would be in order. It always comes back. It's one of those laws of conversations. And so when we are disingenuous, and you know, this even works with something as simple as sarcasm, right? Sarcasm is another place where we say one thing, but there's a hidden meaning behind it, right? Like I could have gone up to Sharon and said, oh yeah, that was a nice party. <laughs> right? And a part of me is like saying, yeah, it's a nice part of me. And part of me is saying quite the opposite. When we give these mixed messages in the world, once again, we devalue ourselves. We say that we don't have, what we're saying is I don't have the integrity just to say what happened, just to say how it was. And when we do that in a big way, I still remember, uh, I worked for many years at the telephone company. One of the brightest women on the planet was the union steward in my shop. And uh, gosh, uh, both uh, management and the union so depended on this woman. She was wonderful at both maintaining the, the, the rights and privileges, you know, making sure that vacation schedules and tenure were honored and things like that. And at the same time, she was really very helpful for management. But I still remember we got into contract negotiations one time. And to the union leaders, she told one story of what was going on in our small work group. And to the management team, she was telling, I mean, it was the difference between, oh, yes, they treat us bad, you know, and on the other hand, it's such a privilege to work here. And, 
And do you know what? It totally undermined her efforts at doing something really powerful and something good in the world. And she didn't need to do that. It was, a, it was actually a, a, a pretty loving negotiation that year when the contract was up, and there was really no need to be pitting people against each other. It literally just devalued her in everyone's eyes once they realized what was going on. So when we can have consistency between our thoughts, our words, our actions, and our deeds, when we are seen as that person with a lot of integrity and consistency, our level of power in the world, our our ability to be liked, and, 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 and people suddenly want us to be on committees and help us with things, people view us as a better worker, when there's a consistency in what we believe and what we say and how we show up, we become almost magical creations. And maybe it isn't magical at all, maybe it's just there aren't that many people like that. I want all of us to be like that. I would like us to show up in the world with such authenticity and such power, such, such truthfulness, that people literally want to hang on our word. R- remember last week we talked about uh, the idea of deep listening? When someone is really straightforward in their speaking, when someone is very truthful, um, uh, colorful, yes, but also right to the point and careful in their speech, aren't those the folks you love to listen to? It's like you don't have to work at it anymore. It's like a delight. Well, Thich Nhat Hanh also has some ideas around intentional speech. Last week, one of our keys towards listening well was trying to decide if we could intuit what the intention of the speech was. Not just the words, but really, you know, why am I being talked to? What, what is this? Is this? Is the intention here to be better friends? Is the intention here to impart information? Is the intention here that something needs to change? Is the intention here that... Um, uh, something's not going well. But what is the intention behind the, the interaction? And on the flip side, as speakers, I bet that's something that we don't do very often. I bet we just start talking, right? It's kind of that uh, just launch. We'll get in the boat and we'll decide where we're going later. <laughs> But I want to suggest to you that if even in our speech we have an intention, and this is something I've been working on this week to mixed results, I might say. I tried to, have you ever tried installing filters in your brain? I bet most, a lot of us are in science of mind, of course, so we try to do that. So I've been putting in the filter of what's my intention around this speech, right? I'm, I'm talking and what, you know, what is my intention? Is it to instruct? Is it to make friends? Is it to just, um, you know, share my, you know, what's the intention? And I got to tell you, I say a whole lot of things without any intentions at all, and I bet you do too. Thich Nhat Hanh says the more intentionally we can decide what we're going to say, you know, the, the why behind it, before we say it, the easier it is to find the words and the means for doing a good job of it. Because if we don't know where we're going, how do we know what words to pick? How do we know how to organize things if we don't even know where we're going? He calls the idea of these things mantras for loving speech. And uh, I'm going to read through six of them really quickly. Again, they're they're in your notes. But I'm going to focus on a couple that I think we could use some work on. Or I'll speak for myself. I could use some work on. 
The six intentions or mantras for loving speech are, I am here for you, simply conveying as a purpose in your speech that I'm here for you, that I'm a friend, I'm a coworker, I'm here to stand for you. No matter what's going on, I'm here for you. Another intention that we might have for loving speech is, I know that you were there and I'm happy. It's the intention of welcoming. It's the intention, dare I say, I love you. It's the intention when you greet someone or, or you have a speech around uh, on the telephone about, oh, I wish you were here because you literally do. There is that sense of connection. How often, though, do we make that plain by saying something like that? I know that you were there, and I'm very happy. The next one is kind of uh, uh, on towards compassion. It's, I know that you suffer, and I'm here for you. It's that outstretched hand. It's the, the speech whose intention is to let people know that if they could use a helping hand, a shoulder to cry on, that you're there for them. And I would also like to point out, it says, I know you suffer and I'm here for you, not I know you suffer and I can fix you up. I just kind of want to point that out. Because I think some of us go the extra, you know, the extra mile And actually, then it isn't loving speech anymore. Then it's turning it into a directive thing that says, here's here's what you should do, or here's what I'm going to do. And it's no longer actually in the realm of loving speech. It should just be, I know you suffer, and I'm here for you. Which leads into the next one, I suffer, please help. Now, of course, we're all adults, we're all Oregonians, so that from the get-go means we never need help in anything, right? We're <laughs> but I would like to suggest to you, in the interests of intimacy and friendship, being vulnerable enough to say, there are things going on in my life where I could use some help. Not only is that to bring me some help, But it is one of the most beautiful things that you can actually say to another person. People like being there for you. People want to be your friend. People want to help you out, even if the helping out is simply going to a moving together or, or, um, you know, having a hug or something. Often there's nothing to be done, but if we're vulnerable enough to explain the suffering that we're going through or the trouble that we're in, a world of difference can open up to us. The last two I'm going to talk about at a little more length. The first one is, this is a happy moment. Now you might think, well, wait a minute, this is a happy moment? That's when I say all the time. That's when people walk in the door and I say, hey, sun's out. Good to see you. This is a happy moment. What Thich Nhat Hanh is actually saying, though, is this is the phrase we need to use when people are in despair. And I want to talk about this a little bit, because on the surface, it doesn't make sense. On the surface, you don't want to come to someone and say, you know, my my husband's ill or, or my child I found out is on drugs or something like that, and have the person look at you and say, this is a happy moment, <laughs> right? Pretty clear disconnect here. What he's trying to do, though, is to help both us and other people when we're stuck in misery from the past to recognize we can come that the two of us can come together in the present moment and there can be happiness. So, so let me use um, an example here. I still remember 
I was in the hospital with my mom when the doctor came in and explained to her that she wouldn't be leaving the hospital that really her condition had progressed to the point where even the going back to a, a nursing home wasn't really reasonable, that they were going to put her on hospice and that we should make preparations for the end. And my mom was just kind of stunned. Well, we were both stunned, but of course I'm looking at her and I could see that it almost is sort of, I mean, of course we knew she was gravely ill, but still being told that. And then if that weren't quite enough, the pastoral care director at the hospital, a priest came in and gave her her hospice quilt. And I think it was the act of putting this beautiful handmade quilt over my mom's lap that she realized, holy hell, this is the end. And she had that shocked look, that stunned look. And what I realized was, even in that moment, we had a chance to bring ourselves to a point of love and warmth. And so I don't know what, the, what my presence of mind was, but very carefully I just said, Mom, remember that crazy trip, that, that crazy road trip that we took when I was in 10th grade and there was no air conditioning in the car and we decided to drive across Arizona? And we, she started laughing and we started sharing some stories and what I realized was, no matter how sad, no matter how tragic it was, it, in that moment, there could be peace. In that moment, there could be love. In that moment, there could even be happiness. Now, this is a very Buddhist way of looking at things. Thich Nhat Hanh makes no, uh, uh, you know, no, no doubt about that. What he says is when, when happiness exists, it can only be in the present moment. And in every present moment, we can, should we seek it out, should we look for it, should we seize it, there can be the positive side of life. No matter what's going on on the outside, we have the ability, especially in community with someone else, especially with our loved ones, to bring about peace and even happiness. And so when he says one of the mantras uh, for loving speech is this is a happy moment, it's to remind us that in this moment, we can find peace, the two of us, even if we're disagreeing about something, even if heartache is you know, served up on the platter, we can do something about it that will bring across peace and love. The final mantra for loving speech, <laughs> you're going to laugh, it's, you are partly right. <laughs> and, uh, and the reason I love this one, of course, I can just, I, in my head, I can kind of see Thich Nhat Hanh saying this, like, like someone approaches him and kind of explodes in his face and say, all this peace and nonsense is great, and, but what about this war and what about that war? And, you know, these are the end times and the world's coming to hell in a handbasket. And I can kind of see him, you know, folding his hands and maybe nodding slightly and saying, you are partly right. <laughs> and that's his advice to us. When someone is in our face, when someone is wanting to escalate anger or trouble, when things are not going well, if we can see that there is a partly right involved. So often I think when someone comes at us from a position of, of anger or obstinacy or of trouble, 
no, no matter really what the reason for it is, what we tend to do is try to match it. We tend to try to put the same energy into it. And so if someone is angry and calling us names and questioning our work and kind of explosive, we tend to pitch right back in. We try to defend ourselves. We mount a counterattack or at least an offensive attack. Do you know what I mean? We want to we negate it. It's like, well, I, I, again, when I think back to uh, seven and, and eight-year-old Ricky and myself, we would do this all the time. Well, yeah, and then, and then, but then you and you. Right? It's like, no, you're the bad one here. No, you're the bad one here. And here as adults, we just fancy it up with better language, I think. <laughs> there isn't a whole lot different. What Thich Nhat Hanh says is the very first thing to do is to acknowledge that they're partly right. So if someone comes to you and says, you know, you're, 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 you idiot, look at what you did. This work that you did on Friday was a total mess, and the, the, the patients weren't very well served by that, and this is going to get our whole unit into trouble, and, and, and this, and you know, you're, you're lazy and whatever. He actually says, just take a breath and say something like, I can see why you would say that to acknowledge that there always is a partial truth, even if it's only the understanding that is in the other person. And when you do that, what happens? The energy level comes down, and guess what? Then you could actually have a discussion about it. Then you might be able to explain why on Friday things were out of the ordinary and you left things a mess or, or whatever it was. If you're right up here, though, matching that anger with more anger, nothing's going to happen. No one's going to have a chance for listening or for changing anything. When you want to be directive in your speech, when you want something to change on the outside or in someone else, first of all, how many here think we can just directly change the way other people think and feel? <laughs> this is just a quick check. All right, good. You passed that test. But if you ever want to have a chance even at influencing someone else, it can only happen in a teachable moment. And the teachable moments only exist in a place of calmness, in a place of peace, and a place of trust. So if any of those things are not present, you know, if there's a big hubbub going on, if they don't trust you because maybe you've fibbed a little too much, right? Some of the other things we've talked about today, the teachable moment just doesn't happen. So when we can say, you're partially right, when we can say, you know, from your perspective, I totally get where you're coming from. When we can own up that perhaps in this unpleasantness between us, I must have had some part, and then we move forward, the world suddenly has a chance for change. Our lives certainly have a better hope for moving forward. All right. Well, you've got your little summaries. I hope you'll have some fun with that this week. Uh, the homework this week is a tough one, because I would like you, if you're willing to try putting that filter in, around what are your intentions around what you're saying. I struggled with it a little bit, so be kind with yourself. The filter would just be, I'm getting ready to, you know, talk to my daughter about her grades, let's say. What is my intention behind this speech? Is it to congratulate her? Is it to suggest that there's more work that should be involved? You know, what is my actual intention 
behind that? Could it be one of these loving intentions instead? Or could I use one of these loving intentions as well? So that would be the little filter to put in. We're simply going to attempt this week and moving forward to be more intentional, not about what we say or even how we say it, but our purpose in saying it. What's my actual purpose in saying what I'm saying or what I'm going to say? And if you're like me, you may catch yourself halfway through, and that's okay. <laughs> if you're halfway through a discussion, you're going, wait a minute, where, <laughs> what, what the heck, where am I? That's okay too, just pause a moment. If it's someone that, that you care about, you can even explain you're doing this little thing. And then to yourself say, what is my real purpose here? Is it to control someone? Maybe that's not what I want to be doing. Is it to coerce someone? Maybe that's not what I want to be doing. And look back to the ideas around uh, loving speech, those mantras, to see if one of those might be better served with the real message that you'd like to get across. I'm going to close today with just a, a final quote from this great book and a prayer. The six mantras or intentions for loving speech are something that everyone can practice. The practice of the six mantras is a way to use loving speech and deep listening to keep the door of communications open and successful. With this kind of communication, we will understand each other better, and then our love can be true love because it will be based on understanding each other fully. Let us pray. There is one power and one presence. There is one life and one love. That biggest container of the entire universe, I call it love. And what I know about love is that it is also the interaction between one another. Because God is divided up among all the people, places, and things and issues on the earth. And so when we have speech, on one level, it's God talking to God. And when God talks to God, should it be about anything other than love. And so for this week and beyond, I know that I pay attention to my loving speech, that my intentions for my speaking are, are laudable and, and, uh, and joyous. I, I recognize in myself, even if there are difficulties, that I can take the time to find the right words and the right intentions for letting people know how important they are, how valuable they are, how loved they are. And as it is true for me, I know it can be true for each person in this room that each one of us can get better at our communication styles, at, at deeper listening, at more intentional and loving speech. And I'm just grateful for this. I'm just grateful for coming here on Sundays and seeing the face of God showing up in the many faces in this room. And so I release this prayer into the activity and action of the law itself. I let it be. And together we say, and so it is. So grateful you are here today. Glad you were here today. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you happen to be in the Portland, Oregon area, we'd love to have you visit in person. The Portland Center for Spiritual Living is located at 6211 Northeast Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. We have inspirational services at 9 and 11 a.m. every Sunday. Our mission is to open hearts, ignite minds, and to make a difference. If you'd like to support our center and its podcasts, you can donate online at www.pcsl.org.
www.ghostbusters.us slash donate. Our website is also the place to learn more about what's going on at the center or to contact us. Allow us to become part of your extended community. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, you are most welcome at the Center for Spiritual Living.